text. I want to encourage you to take, we're going to take a minute here. And I want us to write down, if you would, something you believe, and I'll repeat this a few times. Write down something you believe God may give you, do in you, or do through you, but hasn't yet. Write down something you believe God may give you, God may do in you, God may do through you, but hasn't yet. Okay? Okay. Let me pray for us as we get into a time of studying and and benefiting from God's Word. Father, we, we would just ask for your help this morning. Please help us learn to trust you, especially when trusting and obeying necessitates waiting. We just ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. I've always respected people who can grow things, especially because the only thing I seem to be able to grow naturally is facial hair (laughs) in my life, and others can grow (laughs) gardens and have this green thumb. And one spring many years ago in the Midwestern United States, I had organized this retreat for student and adult leaders of a youth ministry of which I was a part in my local church. And, and people who were hosting us had this small apple orchard you know, in, on their property. And upon arrival, we got there early, they asked Katie and I if we wanted some extra uh, apples. I was like, okay. And they're like, well, what about some, would you like some apple turnover? I was like, I don't know what that is. Would you like some apple pie? That's so middle America. Would you like some apple juice? Yellow is my teeth. We kept trying to make excuses. Would you like to play apples to apples, the game with real apples? There were so many apples. I asked them, I said, like, what gives? There's just an obscene amount of apples everywhere. And the woman explained the previous year, she talked about the late frost that had happened the previous spring, and all the buds on the apple trees had froze. And when that happens, an apple tree actually does a miraculous thing. It stores up its energy in thousands of small bumps or nodules called seons. All that energy pulsates through this network of seons until the spring of the following year. So seon to seon, seon to seon. All this pent-up extra energy having not released it the previous spring waits till the following spring when, bam! An explosion of buds as the tree unleashes all the stored up energy the following spring and you get more fruit than you could possibly ask for or imagine. It's amazing. But there is that catch. And that catch is in order to see the fruit, you have to wait. You must deal with the disappointment of the previous year. No apples are very few. You have to deal with the frustration of expecting fruit will come. And you don't see it. So that is also the kind of catch, guys, when it comes to trusting the God of the Bible. That usually you have to wait. To see the explosion of fruit. To see that miracle happen. You didn't even know it was possible. You have to wait for it. That's why I think that singer-songwriter slash prophet Tom Petty I don't know. That's up to you to decide. He was once popular. He sang a long time ago, the waiting is the hardest part. 
Every day you get just one more card. You take it on faith, you take it to the heart. The waiting is the hardest part. I didn't bring my guitar, I'll also just sing it for you with a nice little twang and a Tom Petty mustache. As we wait, though, on God, we try to take it on faith, take it to thought that He will deliver a most perfect provision. But disappointment, frustration often blitz us, especially when you, what you've expected from God doesn't really arrive on schedule, whether it be yours or what you thought was His. When God seems to have revealed His will to us, but take some waiting on our part. It's so easy for us to to sort of just take matters into our own hands, create our own solution to things. And sometimes when it comes down to us deciding between a pretty good situation that we can make for ourselves now or waiting on a perfect situation, God's perfect provision later, which can often seem like an eternity. In the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel, chapter 13, we find the first king of Israel, Saul, being required to trust by waiting for God's perfect provision. So let's turn, if we will, to 1 Samuel 13. Actually, actually wait there for a minute. Don't turn there. I want to explain some things first. 1 Samuel 13 is going to be the focus of our message. Before we get there, I want to give you some context of what led up to this experience of waiting for Saul. Okay, let me do that first. In the middle of the 11th century B.C., Israel gets its first king, Saul of the tribe of Benjamin. Samuel, the, the prophet and priest of Israel at this time, anoints this tall, really handsome young man. And he does this in chapter 10 of 1 Samuel. Alright, so a little bit earlier. That's where I want you to open. So if you have a Bible, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 10. Samuel has just prophesied that three signs, all of which involve Saul in some way, will be fulfilled. And they're amazing. I mean, they're the kinds of signs that only God can do, as you'll see here. And God's trying to show Saul, look, I can, I'm going to be faithful. Even as you wait, you can trust me. I'm a big God who does big things and is faithful to provide for you. So read with me starting in verse 7 of 1 Samuel Chapter 10. Now, this is, this is Samuel talking to, sure, to Saul, King Saul. Now when these signs meet you, do whatever your hand finds you to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal. Okay, so firstly here, Samuel entrusts Saul with a lot of freedom. Freedom that entails power responsibility. He basically says, He's anticipating, I'm going to give you one command. Otherwise, be free. It's almost like in the first king of Israel, we had the first man repeated over again. Adam in the garden. Eat of all the trees, all the fruit, except for one. That's what we have in the first king of Israel here. Interestingly, God gives us great amount of freedom as He does for those of us who trust Christ. Let's look at verse 8. I want us to notice how Samuel specifically emphasizes this command in verse 8. He uses this vahine, which Hebrew means behold. It's a way like angels are coming. This is important. Attention grabber. Behold. Verse 8. Go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming to you, Saul. I'm going to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. Alright, so surely Samuel gave other commands and to Saul and expected more of him, but this is the only explicit command we get in Scripture to 
the new king of Israel. Samuel with specific emphasis for the need to wait. And this command, something big is going to happen. Something momentous, something large, part of God's will is going to happen when he gets to this place called Gilgal. Samuel, speaking as God's mouthpiece, has gone out of his way to make it very clear that Saul must do something very specific to trust and obey. And then we see here in verse 9, when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave Saul another heart. And all these signs came to pass that very day. So everything that Samuel said, look Saul, I'm going to give you signs that God is faithful. And they're miraculous. They all come to pass. Now, if you would turn to 1 Samuel 13. At this point, Saul is officially functioning as the king of Israel. Samuel has retired. He stepped down as Israel's religious and political leader. So 1 Samuel 13, let's read verses 1-15. through Saul was dot, dot, dot years old when he began to reign. And he reigned dot, dot, dot in two years over Israel. Now, I want to need to pause briefly here because the Ancient Hebrew Greek manuscripts, they don't actually give a number for either of these ages, time periods. But if we do some simple math based on the reigns of other kings, some ancient manuscripts, we can determine that Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 42 years. So with that knowledge, we'll start again. Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 42 years over Israel. Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were uh, with Saul and Michmash in the hill country of Bethel. And a thousand years, sorry, and a thousand, sorry, were uh, with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land in celebration, kind of, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it. They heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines and that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. The people were called out to join Saul where? Gilgal. That magical place <laughs> where Saul is commanded to go and to wait on Samuel. The Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of beth When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and holes and rocks and tombs and cisterns. Some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him were now trembling. Okay, so here's this momentous occasion. Saul, heading down, Gilgal, here we are. Will he wait as God has asked him to? He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, there we see that word again, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? Probably saw the smoke in the distance of the burnt offering, smelled the incense and the fat of the meat. 
Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and the Philistines had mustered together at Miss McMash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. <clears throat> you have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever but now your kingdom shall not continue. Let's stop there. The primary evidence of our trust in God is our obedience to Him. Right? He loves us. He's shown us that love. We want to respond. We show that we trust Him by obeying Him. He wants to give us that explosion of apple buds, right? That miracle where you were left waiting and frustrated and maybe even disappointed. And then, but if we just wait, You trust and obey. Boom! That miracle comes. That provision that is perfect for your life. However, trusting God usually requires obedient waiting. God grows our trust through obedient waiting. When things don't seem to go our way, their resources slipping away, by waiting for God to provide according to His leading, we demonstrate that we truly trust the God who we say we love. A good God. A loving God. He's going to take action. He's going to initiate. He will be faithful. That's what we do when we wait. I'll say it one more time. God grows our trust through obedient waiting. Saul clearly fails at this, but the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, guys, that these kinds of Scriptures are written down for us to learn from, as a warning to grow from. And so that's how we use it here this morning. A warning to grow from. We'll look, firstly, at obstacles to waiting that Saul encounters, and we might also, consequences to not waiting. And finally, just a couple strategies that will assist our waiting, that will help us wait well upon a good God. Okay? So firstly, there are three obstacles to waiting Saul encounters. Saul mentions them himself, very simply, in verses 11 and 12, as he defends himself before Samuel. When Samuel says, what have you done? Saul says, yeah, 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 but let me tell you why. The first obstacle to waiting is the flight risk. Saul becomes his own flight risk. Saul's essentially saying to Samuel, look, the Philistines are everywhere, so my men, they fled. They ran. The Philistines were longtime enemies of Israel, guys, if you didn't know this. And to the southwest, it's clear they had seized a stronghold or at least a strong presence in Israel all the way to at least the land of Benjamin. It's just above Jerusalem. They're like sands of the seashore, we're told in verse 5. And now they're only 5 to 10 miles away from Gilgal, where Saul is with his men, gathered together, trying to trust God that he'll provide whatever it is he has in store for him in Gilgal. That's the scene. They're in dire straits, trying to avoid almost certain death. Saul's men begin to flee. They run. Caves, thickets, rocks, pits, cisterns, expecting the worst. Each man begins to only look out for himself. Why do I say this? Because groups don't hide in holes. Right? You don't get the group, hey, let's all hide, but let's do it together in a hole. Right? Garrisons don't hide in cisterns. Who does? Individuals. It's every man for himself. Save yourself. Some traveled even across the Jordan River to flee the army, says in verse 7. 
They run outside of the territory of Israel, or at least to its farthest reaches, to get away. All those who did remain with Saul, it says, were trembling with fear. Look at that. What is our response when everyone else flees? Will you also flee? Will you abandon so easily the dream, the hope, the leading of God just because others have given flight? What if obedient waiting means that they flee from you? More people start to make clear they don't want to give themselves, give of themselves much to support your project at work, your initiative. Your children listen less and less to your demands, even your pleas now. Or the people who appeared most committed to stick with you are now not there for you. They don't show up. Our first thought, and often the one that prevails, is I better make a plan soon or even now, lest success just fade out of my reach completely. I've got to do something about it. Stem the tide. Make lemonade out of lemons. Just make the best of the situation. So either you modify the plan, make it seem more reasonable, or you make it more palatable so more people will kind of join with you. Anytime others, and especially the most faithful, fly from the scene, you too become a flight risk to run from what God has in store for you. The second obstacle we see here is when something's just off. Right? Something doesn't seem right. Based on what God's done in your life before, based on His Word maybe, or based on what you sense He has in store for you. The timing, the persons, the situation, the circumstances seems off. Saul, in effect, says to Samuel in verse 11, look, you did not show up when you said you're going to. You said seven days. Saul was able to resist the flight risk, at least initially. He, re- he sort of resisted modifying the plan. He waited seven days, just as Samuel asked him to in chapter 10. But then something strange happens. Samuel does, never comes over that horizon. He's a no-show. That's not the way it was supposed to go, and it leaves Saul in an awkward position. More of his men begin to scatter. Even though God had fulfilled all those amazing signs around, around and in Saul, Saul can only recognize from his finite point of view, where's God now? What have you done for me in the last few hours? The last few days? What have you done for me lately, God? Instead of remembering his faithfulness just weeks prior. This obstacle is compounded when we consider that Saul was given a timetable. We rarely get one of those, do we? So when something seems off from our perspective, we may object, man, I've been patient, I've waited, I've done my part. Why hasn't God showed up? He says in His Word, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you received it, will be yours. God, I really believe that you're going to do this. I've prayed, I've sought you, but it's not here. God has left, so I must correct. That's what we tell ourselves. You begin to strain yourself. Maybe it's through pushing a friend, family member in Christ before they're ready. You spend money when you don't have. You exert time and energy when God meant for you to spend those things on other people and loving them and caring for them in specific ways. You know, I kind of chuckle at that slogan at the Christian dating website. What's that called? Anybody remember that? Have you ever heard of it? I've seen it on commercials. The Christian dating website. Christian, uh, Christian Mingle. Right? And there's this little, you know, little slogan at the end. Sometimes we wait on God for make the first move when He's saying, it's your time to act. It's like, well, can you give me a verse for that? <laughs> like, just, is that like, is that 1 John or 2 Peter? 
<laughs> There's a time to act, but it's almost always in response to God's first move, His initiative. In the meantime, it's far wiser to wait. As we see here from the example of Saul. Third obstacle to waiting is that subtle why that God's end justifies your means. Let me say that again. That subtle lie that God's end justifies your means. We see that in verse 12. Look at that with me here. I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I've not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself. I offered the burnt offering. Saul, at least according to his own testimony, was attempting to seek the Lord's favor. And seeking his favor is indeed wise, right? Not only this, but it was proper for, for Saul to want the Philistines to be defeated. Earlier in chapter 9, God promises that's going to happen. They're going to defeat the Philistines. They're the means, seeking God's favor in this way, offering burnt offerings and sacrifices, isn't justification for doing what he did. Okay? These means are not proper. It was the prescribed role of the priest and the priest alone to offer burnt offerings before the Lord. And Samuel specifically asserted that he, as the prophet and priest of Israel, was going to come down and do this himself. Saul oversteps his bounds. He didn't wait for any longer. He failed to trust that God would keep his promise. He thought that if he didn't start the process of military action, which always in the ancient Near East began with sacrifices to your God, there's no way they could win. They wouldn't win the battle. God wouldn't provide. So he feels compelled to make this burnt offering. That's what it says if you have the NIV translation. He says, I feel compelled. Often we too set out with a good intention to accomplish God's ends, but we use sinful means. Lord, I want to do this for you. So we seek God's favor by praying that will help us, but then we take it from there. The focus is on I as the actor, I as the initiator. I will do this. We usurp God's power by taking initiative ourselves. Prayer is transformed as a manipulative tool somehow to get God to do what you want. We might even find a few Bible verses to confirm what our heart really wants to do. Find a few people around us who are basically yes-men who never say, hey, hey, have you ever thought about just, just wait? Slow your roll, man. Take your time. Are you sure this is what God wants? The first year of Katie and I's marriage, I worked as a furniture salesman while uh, completing my seminary degree, and I really enjoyed the job. Um, part of it's just being around leather recliners all day, <laughs> testing them out. You've got to do that. When you sell furniture, just test the product. But I really love the art of the deal, as Mr. Trump calls us. I love like, working with people and finding out how I could help them. Find good furniture at a good value. We had certain territorial guidelines as a salesman. For instance, uh, if a consumer comes in looking for a particular salesman who maybe helped them earlier, it's my job to refer to, to, to their partner if they're not there. So each salesman had a partner, so if they're absent, the partner will help complete the sale, take half the commission. That's kind of how it worked. Well, one day, a couple approached me about a quote they'd been given by um, one of my friends the following evening, one of our salespeople. It was near closing time. These people looked like they were in a hurry, right? They had kids. They're kind of jumping around on mattresses and stuff. Great time for them. Not good for the store. So I decided, look, I'll just help this couple out. In the end, I figure what the end I figured was customer service, right? Helping these people, helping them get out of the store, get the kid to bed on time. 
but my means were not justified. There was a certain protocol in place. I didn't follow it. So the uh, payout for the commission of the sold furniture was consequently messed up. Half of it was given to me instead of my friend's partner. The next day, we spent hours trying to, to, to sort things out. And it created a lot of strain in our relationships because I had forgotten my role. I needed to wait to call the appropriate post person in, wait for them to arrive. I foolishly attempted to take control of the situation, act on it myself, so I messed everything up. This is often what happens, guys, when we take, try to take the situation into our own hands. We use our own means to, and say, that's okay, as long as it accomplishes God's ends. So three obstacles, again, flight risk. Something just seems off. Finally, we use God's end to justify our own sinful means. For Saul, that was enough to say, so I forced myself. I felt compelled. Really, his argument is designed to evoke sympathy in Samuel, and maybe it does. But ultimately, he didn't trust God. He didn't wait, as God called him to. No forgiveness is available through Christ now, which is amazing. There are consequences to our sin. What are the consequences to Saul's lack of waiting? The most glaring consequences is located in his response to Saul in verses 13 through 14, and that is lost opportunities. Saul loses the opportunity of establishing a long-standing dynasty that would have carried on his name for years to come. The notion of establishing one's kingdom, that was a way that any king in the ancient Near East carried on his legacy. It was the closest thing they got to eternal life was establishing a dynasty with your name, your sons, your grandsons, your great-grandsons. And that was stripped from him. It might seem pretty harsh. I was reading a little bit on this passage this week, and uh, John Wesley thought similarly. He thought, you know, this is for such a little sin, it's a harsh consequence. But then he goes on to say, John Wesley, indeed there is no little sin because there is no little God to sin against. In general, what seems to us a small offense to him who knows the heart it may appear a heinous crime. And when we say to God, no, I will take this situation. I will fulfill what I think is your will for me. It's cosmic treason, guys. Against the God of the universe who promises to provide for us. Cosmic treason. Sin. A failure to obediently wait can result in lost opportunities for us. We only recognize it usually later. In my situation as a salesman, I developed a solid relationship with that salesman who was absent that day, Jason. We got to know each other well. He was receptive to Christ and Christianity. He was a Jewish guy. My failure to wait not only hurt him, and it ticked him off. Though he later forgiven me, he no doubt had lost some of that respect in the relationship with me. Never again will we discuss spiritual matters on the same level again. My opportunity was lost. I'll never forget that. So hopefully we've learned it's about benefiting from Saul's failure to wait upon the Lord. God grows our trust through obedient waiting. So now we're left with the question. I hope that you apply it. That, that little thing you wrote down. What, is God, what do you think God wants to give you? What do you sense God wants to do in you? What do you kind of anticipate God wants to do through you but hasn't yet? How can we practically wait well? I want to give us just a couple strategies that can assist us in our waiting and trusting God to fulfill His will for you. First, eagerly anticipate God's initiative in your life. A month ago, we had a service dedicated to testimonies of Thanksgiving. 
And we heard amazing testimonies. For instance, my friends, the Nysonins, who together experienced Carl's unemployment, and God asked them to wait as he provided the next step for them. His perfect provision. There were a couple courses they could have jumped on right away, but God said, wait. Wait on me until I make it clear. And there were other testimonies very similar to this. And when I hear these guys, my first reaction is, that's so awesome, that's so awesome. But God, don't make me go through that. (laughs) Please. I don't want to go through the waiting. Rather, just let's kind of get on with this, God. But really, all those testimonies you hear from people, all these stories you hear about how God provided as they waited on Him, is the food God is giving us for us to wait. He's preparing for us to wait. He, he wants for us to eagerly anticipate, okay, now how do you think I might do this for you? How do you think I might come through and provide that amazing explosion for your life? Psalm 37.3, which Gordon led us uh, to read earlier, says this, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on faithfulness. If I can encourage you to memorize one verse of Scripture this week coming out of this message, it would be this, Psalm 37.3. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on faithfulness. While I wait and dwell, I need to feed on the testimonies of faithfulness and get excited how he might initiate in my life what he might do to bring about his will. You know, King David did this as well, the man who succeeded Saul. God said to David, you're going to be king now. But David had to wait, didn't he? Through many trials, through threats of murder, through running into caves. There's this one moment where David has an opportunity to take the kingdom for himself. He's in a cave, and Saul comes in. This Saul who's tried to kill David. David has an opportunity. His, David's own men say, hey, David, this is your chance. You can take him out. But David knows, God has clearly said, that these means are selfish. He doesn't need selfish means to accomplish his will. I cannot hurt the Lord's anointed. So he waits. He waits for God's perfect timing, which God brings about. What an amazing lesson that God furnished for David to be patient throughout a difficult kingdom and has provided a lesson through the ages for us. Why? Because he waited. He waited for God's perfect provision. Secondly, obey his everyday will as you wait. People often share with me that they want to know God's will for their lives. One of the things I respond in saying that is, well, what does God's word say about his will? My hope is that as they search the scriptures, one of the scriptures they might come across is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting in verse 16. Be joyful always, pray continuously, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. This is God's will for you. What, some some grand ministry or missions trip? Is it starting this new business through which I might help young entrepreneurs? Is it marrying this person I'm now dating and talking about what our lives will look like? No. Be joyful always. Keep on praying. Give thanks in all circumstances. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. In other words, it's the little things, the everyday things we do my encouragement to you is as you wait, usually you'll find yourselves in God's larger will and purpose for you. 
Here's what I mean. I remember five and a half years ago, I was between pastoral positions, and I met a guy named Jerry uh, who was working at one of these outdoor stores. All right? Jerry had traveled the world um, <laughs> using a kayak, essentially. It's pretty amazing. Like, he uses kayak to get everywhere on major rivers, mostly. So I asked him, like, how did you find your way? Because he shared that he didn't have much of a map with him. And I was like, man, this, this is pretty amazing. And he, and he said something I'll always remember. He said, stay in the stream and you'll always find the river. Stay in the stream and you'll always find the river. In other words, he knew that going downstream would lead to a creek, and then sometimes a lake, and then sometimes a tributary, and then eventually a river. And he knows where he's going. If you faithfully paddle on the so-called smaller streams of his will, laboring in prayer, living a life of gratitude and generosity, you can be confident that you don't know when, you will find yourself knee-deep in his larger will for you. If you stay in the stream, you'll always find yourself in the river. Psalm 37.3 again, trust in the Lord and do good. Trust in the Lord. Wait on him. Trust in him and do good at the same time. Don't wait around twiddling your thumbs saying, woe is me, isolating yourself until God brings his will for your life in the way you expect it. Do good. Love others. Pray for them. Encourage them. Live a life of generosity. And you will always find the river. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have great good in store for us. We thank you that as we begin to obey you in the small things and wait, we will always find the river. We will always find ourselves perfectly in your will. In fact, it's sometimes in doing those very things, Father, that we find your larger will for our life. So I just want to pray for my dear friends here today that as we consider what we sense you might want to do in our lives, what we sense you might want to do through us, what we sense you might want to give us, that you help us wait well, trusting in you, staying obedient to you, not trying to force the situation, but believing you will come through as we feed on your faithfulness to us in the past and we look to your faithfulness through Jesus and providing a way for salvation. We know that you'll provide a way where there is no way because you're a God who just loves to do that. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.